Thank you very much and um, Happy New Year. We're still saying Happy New Year. First Sunday in January. I hope you all had a really good Christmas. Might seem like a little bit of a distant memory, um, but I hope you had a, a great time, whatever you did. Di, if you're taking photos, can you make sure it's from my good side? Yeah. <laughs> no, don't worry. Every side is good. <laughs> do you want me to do like a, an intense, like smolder kind of... Or a kind of, I'm really happy kind of, you know. Thanks for taking the photos. Um, so yeah, Happy New Year. Um, early January um, brings lots of things, but of course it is the time of year when for many of us, it's time to get healthy. We decide it's time to get healthy, particularly after the excesses of Christmas. People decide to detox or to eat a simpler diet or to cut out alcohol or to go running or even to join the gym get gym membership. Gyms tend to be very full in January, and then by February, not so much. I haven't been yet, but I am going to. All right, You can hold me to that. I'm going to go. So, we become aware, I think, at certain times, we might be aware of it all the time, but we become aware that our physical health, maybe, is not all that it should be, or all that it could be. But the question I want to ask at the start of this new year is, what about your spiritual health? How are you doing spiritually? How healthy do you feel spiritually? How alive do you feel in Christ? How brightly are you shining for him? Because he tells us you're the light of the world, you know, and the light is meant to shine. How brightly do you feel you're shining? For most of us in here today, not everybody, but for most of us, uh, our lives have been transformed by meeting and encountering Jesus. And that's what our preaching series this term is going to be all about, um, starting next week. Um, called Encounters with Jesus, and particularly looking at the Gospel of John, where individuals have a life-changing encounter with Jesus. And as part of that, I trust that through that preaching series, that we ourselves will have new, fresh encounters with Jesus, because we need that. It's why we, it's good to look at him. It's why it's good to be together. We want to encounter him together. Um, we need to be encountering Jesus on an ongoing basis. But where would you say you are spiritually at the moment? How full or empty is your spiritual battery? How evident is Jesus in your life to those who observe your life? You know, how evident is the peace and the love and the joy that you have in him? How evident is, is it to those who are looking at your life? Do people look at your life and think, wow, what is it about you? What is it you've got? What is this peace that you've got that I don't seem to have? What is it that you have that I don't have but I really would like a piece of? Well, I suspect that much like physical health, most of us are not really where we want to be spiritually. We, we know there's more. We know there are other places that we can go. And so today I want to look at a couple of verses in Colossians 2 that I hope will help us with this. Just basically a reminder of some basic truths, some key truths um, as we start this new year. So it's Colossians 2 and verses 6 to 7, which say this. This is the Apostle Paul writing. So then... Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Why don't we just pray together? Lord, at the start of this new year, that's what we want. We want to grow. We want to be rooted in you. We want to, we want to be strengthened in you. We want to shine brightly for you. So Lord, help us uh, today, this week, this month, this year, help us to shine for you. Help us to be strengthened 
And um, over this next, these next few minutes, Lord, would you speak to us in whatever way you want to speak to us? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Those two verses are actually a great summary of the whole letter to the Colossians. So let me just give you a little bit of background to this. Um, Paul, who wrote the letter, he hadn't actually planted this church himself. He never visited Colossae, as far as we know. Um, This church here was planted by Epaphras and other converts from Paul's missionary travels. And Paul is writing this letter from prison following a visit from Epaphras, who visited him in prison, to just tell him how the church is getting on, and how, you know, how well the church is doing in certain areas, but also what the pressures were that the church was facing, the cultural pressures, the things around them that were threatening to draw them away from Jesus, these new believers, this new, this new church. And so Paul writes this letter with a very specific purpose. He writes to encourage the church and to remind them of some key fundamental truths to help them stand up to those pressures. So what were the pressures they were facing? There were two main pressures. The first was that these new Christians had grown up in a Greco-Roman culture of polytheism and mysticism, so many different gods. Okay, So the temptation was to take Jesus as just another one of many different gods. He's just another deity to worship. That was one pressure. Second pressure was from the Jewish Christian community who, some of whom were trying to teach these non-Jewish Christians that to complete their commitment to Christ, they needed to follow the whole of the Torah, the whole of the Jewish law. So, you know, that they needed to get circumcised, that they needed to eat kosher food, that they needed to observe all the various rituals and sacred days. And Paul is writing to counter both of those pressures with truth. So first, that Jesus is not just one of many deities, but he triumphed over all other spiritual powers in his death and his resurrection. And then secondly, that Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the Torah on our behalf. See, the law lacks the power to change anyone's heart. But Jesus, what he did, what he did through his life and his death and his resurrection, that lacks nothing. It's complete. It's all sufficient. You can't add to it. There's no need to try to add to what Jesus has done. He's done it. He's fulfilled the whole of the law, and he is who the whole of the law points to. So this, this is why Paul is writing. He's writing with truth to counter these cultural pressures. And that's what the whole letter's about, but it's really well encapsulated in these two verses. What about us? You know, as we think of cultural pressures, they faced cultural pressures. We face cultural pressures. So what are the pressures that we face in our day? Well, let me just highlight a couple. First is I think we still live in a polytheistic society. It wouldn't describe itself like that. It wouldn't be as blatant as in a Greco-Roman culture where there are all these different gods that have names and different things. And... But I think we're surrounded by gods and idols that are trying to take the top position in our heart. They're vying for our attention. They're vying for our focus and trying to dislodge Jesus from his rightful place as king of our hearts. So what are those gods? What are those idols? Well, they can be good things. They can be things we have in our lives which are really good things in themselves, like your career, uh, family, friends. These are all really good things we have in our lives. But when we turn them into ultimate things, when we make those things the things that we're looking to for every bit of meaning in our life, you see it all the time. You see people giving themselves completely to their career. That is where their identity is really Now, career is a really great thing, but when we turn it into an ultimate thing, 
it's a very poor foundation. If we're trying to stand on our career as our foundation, we're trying to stand on our family, we're trying to stand on our friendships, they're really poor foundations because they will all crumble in the end because you won't have your career forever. So what do you do when you have to stop work? You won't have your family forever. You won't have your friends forever. You know, they're not good foundations to base our lives on. So good things can become idols very easily. But then there are also, of course, those things that the world promises will bring us meaning and satisfaction and fulfilment like sex, money, power, leisure, materialism. These are things which promise much and deliver emptiness, ultimately. So there's that kind of pressure, gods and idols, polytheism, really. But then there's a second pressure, which I think is a very powerful one in our day and and has been through the ages, but in our day, the pressure to conform. Not so much to a way of behaving, but to a way of thinking. To conform to the things that all so-called reasonable people, all so-called tolerant people, believe nowadays. And particularly in our day, that would be in the area of sexuality, marriage, gender. And if you don't conform, then you're a hateful person. If you don't conform to that, then you're a bigot, you're you're outdated. And what we have in our day that they didn't have in their day is social media which is a very, very powerful tool. It can be a very powerful tool for good, and it can also be a very powerful tool in reinforcing that populist view of things and giving any old idiot a platform, let's face it. But at the same time, marginalising and shaming those who don't line up with that populist view of things. And so the temptation, of course, is to conform to the thinking of the world, because it's easier even though what you're conforming to might be in total opposition to what the Bible says, who likes being marginalised? Who likes being shamed? No one likes that, do they? No one looks for that. So the temptation is to conform. So how do we stand up against those pressures? We stand up against them by reminding ourselves, as Paul is doing in this letter, reminding ourselves of what is truth, what is solid, eternal truth that is a good foundation to stand on, And what is fleeting subjectivity that masquerades as truth? In other words, the opinions of today that are espoused as absolute truth. What is eternal truth? And what is just what people think is truth today? Here's what Tim Keller says about this. It's quite a long quote, so do bear with me, but I think he makes a very good point. He says, It is striking to see that the opposition to Christian belief in each age changes radically from century to century. The existentialists of the 20th century were horrified by the views of the utilitarians of the early 19th century who in turn mocked the beliefs of the deists of the 18th century. In every generation, sceptics speak of what all intelligent people believe now. Yet it is always sharply different from that which was taken as self-evident by the same kind of people just a few decades before. The racial views and discourse of our great-grandparents is offensive to us today. But almost certainly, today's reigning views of race, sex, and gender will be seen as laughable or outrageous by our own great-grandchildren. That's hard to imagine because the opponents of Christianity in each era are sure that they have finally arrived at the Enlightenment. That is never the case. Non-belief is notoriously unstable. Sceptical views go out of date very fast. In other words, the things which people are proclaiming as absolute truth today will be different tomorrow. Contrast that with the unchanging, eternal truth of the gospel. 
that goes down the centuries and the millennia. It's unchanging. It's a solid foundation. So what's Paul doing in this letter? He's reminding the Colossians of what is true, of what is eternally true, to counter these cultural pressures that they were facing in that moment. And so we must do the same. We can learn from this. We must do the same. So just take a closer look at those two verses that we're focusing on today. Paul starts by saying, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, I wonder what you think of when you think of receiving Christ. So for me, I'd be tempted to think of that moment in March 1994 when I encountered God powerfully in a church building in Horsham. And that was the moment for me when my whole life changed. It was a powerful encounter. I was radically born again, powerfully born again. My life was changed forever in that moment. And you might not have had an encounter like that. But maybe for you, you can remember a moment, a time when you very quietly invited Jesus to come into your life. You prayed a prayer and you invited Jesus to come into your life. There was a a moment, maybe that's what you think of as, that's when I received Christ. And those are, those are really important moments, don't get me wrong. But receiving Christ here, when Paul talks about receiving Christ, I think it means a lot more than that. Because this receiving would have been understood by the original readers of this letter, it would have been understood as the transmission of teaching, a body of teaching from one person to another, or from one generation to another. And Paul uses the phrase in the next verse, just as you were taught. So he's kind of placing it in the context of teaching. So what the Colossians received, when Paul says when you received Christ, what the Colossians received was Paul's account passed on through Epaphras of the gospel truths. The teaching, this body of teaching about Jesus' death for their sins, his resurrection on the third day and the proclamation of Jesus as Lord, which then led to their confession of faith and submitting their lives to Christ and their hearts to Christ and beginning a new spiritual life as members of Christ's body. It's the same as when Paul says to the Corinthians in another letter, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. What did he receive? Well, it's this teaching that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. That's what he received, and he passed on. This might seem like a minor point to you, but I actually think it's a really important point Um, an important distinction between what we might think of as receiving Christ and what Paul actually means. Because what Paul is communicating here to the Colossians is that the teaching, it's the teaching they received of what Jesus did, what Jesus said, who Jesus is, as witnessed by many, many different people, that provides the crucial foundation for their faith. This teaching, this truth provides a crucial foundation for their faith. In contrast with all the mystical religions and various deities that they were surrounded by, the story of Christianity stands out because it's rooted in history. It's rooted in fact. And so I think this places a great importance on us today to have a really solid foundation of teaching in our lives, to be reminding ourselves all the time of the truth of the gospel, to have a good understanding of the gospel, what the gospel is, what it means, and to be teaching the full gospel to others, not just focusing on leading people up to a moment, one moment of salvation. We tend to have a focus on that, and I'm not saying that that moment of salvation isn't important, it is absolutely crucial. 
I'm so grateful to God that he came into my life in the way he did because it was powerful and it was undeniably God. I, it, it, was, it was so important for me. But I'm also so grateful for those who followed up with me, for those who discipled me and explained the gospel to me over the weeks and months that followed because I didn't really understand what had happened to me in that moment of encounter. I didn't really understand. I knew something had happened. I didn't really understand what And that one moment in itself, as powerful as it was, would never have been an adequate foundation on its own for me to be able to continue to live, as Paul says, to continue to live in that faith. So there's a sense in which the gospel, the truth of the gospel, needs to be learnt, it needs to be understood in order to be received, in order to receive Christ, without taking away from the importance of having encounter moments. Now this is also important because what Paul actually says is, he says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. To receive someone as Lord, you need to have an understanding of who this is. So for the Colossians to receive and proclaim Jesus as Lord, that's a huge thing. One, because they're in the Roman Empire where Caesar is Lord, and if you declare that somebody else is Lord, that's a pretty dangerous thing to do. But it also meant that Jesus could not be just one of many deities to be worshipped because he is the Lord. He's the ultimate. By saying, using the word Lord, you're saying, no, you're above everything else. You are the Lord. And when you acknowledge Jesus as Lord, when you bind yourself to him as the Lord of your life, you also bind yourself to being obedient to him, completely obedient to him. I wonder how often we remind ourselves of that or how often do we say, oh, Jesus is Lord, without really appreciating what a revolutionary radical statement that is in the context of our lives and in the context of our world? Or how often do we speak to others about Jesus as Lord? Receive Jesus as Lord. How often do we really tell people that gospel? We like to speak to people about Jesus as the saviour, because he is. That's a far more attractive message, isn't it? Because it's like, oh, you're in need of rescue. You're in darkness. Jesus is the perfect saviour. He wants to save you. That's a really attractive message for people who understand that they're lost, who understand that they're in darkness. Jesus is the saviour, but it's not the full gospel. It's true, but it's not the full gospel because Jesus is saviour, yeah, but he's also Lord. How often do we tell people about that? To receive Jesus as Lord is not only to accept the truth of the gospel and receive its benefits for yourself, it is also to submit your life completely to him. Put him in the driving seat. That's a little bit more difficult. You know, Jesus can only be saviour because he's Lord. Because he has unquestioned authority over the powers of evil and darkness. It tells us in verse 15 that he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He can only be saviour because he's Lord. And so to truly receive him implies his right to rule. It implies his right to be Lord and King of your life. And therefore, he gets to determine what is right and what is wrong, not the world. And I trust him more than the world, I tell you. He died for me, the world hasn't. He gets to determine what is right and wrong. He gets to determine what is a a worthy and consistent way of living for him. If you claim to have received his salvation, you know, if you say, yeah, Jesus is my saviour, but your life, you're living your life in a way that is totally inconsistent with his commands. I'm not talking about perfection. You know, it's like none of us are perfect. We all sin. 
But if you're living your life claiming Jesus as Savior on one hand and living your life in a way that's entirely inconsistent with his commands, that's like saying, Jesus, I want your benefits. I don't want you. But it doesn't work like that because Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. And if that's what you say to him, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, then you're also saying, well, Jesus, you get to call the shots in my life and I will obey you. I will, regardless of the cost. It's costly to follow Jesus. It's not easy But you are saying, you are Lord, you determine what's right and wrong, you determine how I'm supposed to live my life, I will follow you, I will obey you, regardless of the cost. I wonder how many of us feel spiritually unhealthy, fundamentally because we're living lives of disobedience. You're not going to grow if that's how it is. It's making him Lord over every aspect and area of life. That takes a lot of trust, but then why wouldn't you trust him, the one who gave himself for you? Are there parts of your life that you're holding back from him? And just to give you a little clue, all of us are. No one's got this cracked. We're all holding parts of our life back from him. But just ask him, what, what am I holding back from you? Where, where am I not actually living like you're Lord of my life? What do I need to give over to you? And trust him with it, because he's trustworthy. So Paul says, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Just as, you know, in the same way that you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue on that path. Continue in that manner. He's saying receiving Christ is not the destination. It's the beginning of a new life. Foundations don't exist for their own sake. Foundations exist to be built upon. We are meant to grow in our relationship with Christ. We're meant to grow in faith. But Paul is saying that your growth and your progress in the Christian life has to be consistent with its beginnings with how it began, to live out the Christian life in a way that is worthy of the Lord. And Paul then lists four kind of key things, characteristics really, of what that means. We're only going to look at one of them, but he says this, continue to live in him, rooted, built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. I mean, thankfulness is a whole other sermon. You know, thankfulness is a great sign of God's activity in your life. It also, if you're feeling spiritually kind of in the doldrums, Thankfulness is a great starting place because thankfulness breeds thankfulness and it lifts your eyes. It's a great way to start. The Psalms tell us you enter his courts and his gates with thanksgiving. So thankfulness, if you're feeling a bit low, thankfulness is a great place to start. But it's also a great sign of God's activity in your life. I just want to focus on that rooted metaphor where he says being rooted in him. Paul is saying that what believers have been taught about the gospel, this teaching they've received, that receiving of Christ as Lord, that has rooted them in the faith. It's like saying that you are rooted in the fertile soil of the gospel, really, of Jesus himself. You're rooted in this soil, like in Jeremiah 17, uh, where it says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose confidence is in him. And if you've been doing Bible in one year, you'll recognize Psalm 1 in here as well. It says, he will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Now that is somebody, that's describing somebody who can go through trials and suffering, who can go through dry times and still thrive and still flourish. Why? Because they're planted in the right place. They're planted in good soil and they're planted by the stream you are rooted if you're in Christ you are rooted in Christ you're in the best soil 
full of nutrients, watered by the river of God's Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is telling us is continue there. Continue to put your roots down deeper and deeper into that soil, into the truth of the gospel, into the teaching about the gospel. What is the truth? The truth is that you were utterly lost and without hope. You were completely lost without hope and you didn't even know it. You were planted in rocky soil. You were lost. You were lost in your sin. You were lost in the darkness. You were heading for an eternity separated from God. But God, in his love, he took the initiative and he came to live the life you should have lived and die the death you should have died so you could be reconciled to him and that you could be taken and planted in good soil. And he receives you into his kingdom as his son, as his daughter, just as you receive him as Lord. That's the truth. That's the gospel. This is how John Calvin put it. This is a quote from the 16th century, right? So it's an eternal truth. This is an unchanging truth. This is John Calvin. I'm going to read this quite slowly because I just want us to soak it in. The wonder of what has happened if you're in Christ. This is what Calvin says. This is the exchange which out of his measureless goodness he has made with us. That receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. That taking our weakness upon himself, he has strengthened us by his power. That having received our mortality, he has given us his immortality. That descending to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. That becoming a son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him. I mean, that's glorious. If you really think about it, what a glorious exchange for us. <laughs> Put your roots down into that and drink Drink deeply. Why? Because it's true. It's true. The gospel truth that we have received is rooted in history. It's rooted in the witness of transformed lives. He is where you get your identity. He is where you get your value and your acceptance and your significance and your purpose and your meaning in life. It's in him. When we turn to other things to try to get a sense of fulfillment and meaning in life, it's a bit like yanking your roots out of really good soil and trying to get your nourishment from a bunch of rocks. It doesn't make sense. Why would we do that? And yet we do. It's foolishness. It's foolishness to do that. Continue to be rooted in him, is what Paul is saying. Just as you were planted in that soil when you were saved, when you received Christ, so continue there. Continue just as you started when you received him as Lord. Right? So a plant, plant needs soil, good soil. It needs water. Plant also needs a good environment. It needs plenty of light and warmth. It's like a greenhouse. So if Jesus is the soil, if the gospel is the soil, then the church is the greenhouse. And I want you to understand, he has placed you in the church. This is no accident, he's placed you. And I want you to really understand this. I'll just spend a few minutes on this because it's so important for us to get it. So many people miss out on all the good that God has for them because they don't get this. He's placed you in the church. He's designed you to live life alongside others, alongside his people as family, so that we can love one another and we can encourage one another and we can feed one another and give light and warmth to one another and sometimes gently prune one another. 
It's all about helping us keep our roots in the right place, to keep them firmly embedded in the soil of the gospel, to help one another grow and flourish. And we need one another. We can't do it without one another. You won't grow without one another. Now, you know, that doesn't happen in an hour and a half on a Sunday or one in two Sundays or one in three or one in four, whatever is your habit. It doesn't happen there. Francis Chan was a pastor in San Francisco and he tells the story of an ex-gang member who was powerfully saved. He baptised him and he was really involved in the church for a while. You know, involved in everything and then he disappeared. He left. And someone from the church bumped into him a few months later and he asked him, what happened? You know, why, why are you not in the church anymore? And this guy said, well, I didn't understand church. Because when I was baptised, I thought it was like being inducted into the gang where they, they're your family 24-7. I didn't know it was just somewhere we attended on a Sunday. And Francis Chan said that just broke his heart when he heard that because it, it meant that the gangs, the gangs were a better picture of family than the church of Jesus Christ. Now we've spoken a lot about the church's family over the last year or so. And we know there are many barriers in our society. There are many barriers in our culture to the church being family. There are barriers of time and busyness and individualism, you know, things in our culture which are not conducive to living this kind of life. But we have to find ways of overcoming those barriers. It's not an option. It's not an optional extra for us. If you want to grow as a Christian, it's not an optional extra. We've got to find ways of overcoming barriers and not conforming to the pattern of this world because as the church, we are to be involved in each other's lives like family. Jesus said, this is how people will know that you're my disciples. This is how people will know you belong to me because they will see how you love one another. That's where they'll see it. They'll see this community, this family shining out. They'll see how well you love one another as evidence of the love that you've received from Christ. Of course, you can't be involved in everybody's life because there are too many people for that. We know that. But are you in genuine community through the church? Are you in genuine community? That might be through small groups, through serving teams, through just building friendships with people in the church. People who you know and people who really know you. And I mean like really like beyond the surface. They, they know the real you. You're part of each other's lives. You're in and out of each other. Do you have that? Do you have that kind of community? Because I, I, I've got to be honest, I get so tired of consumer Christianity. I'm so tired of it. it it's, a, it's, a, it's a counterfeit. It's not, it's not what we're here for. Please don't approach the church as a consumer. It will do you no good. Honestly, it will do you no good. Please don't think of church as a place, a building where you come for an hour and a half every Sunday or some Sundays, whenever it suits you. No, don't think of the church like that. that, that that's deception. That is deception of the enemy. Don't think of the church like that. The, think of the church as your family. Imperfect, flawed, messy, inconvenient, definitely. But family family, a group of people that has your heart and that you are committed to with everything you have and with everything you are, not just when it's convenient to you, not just when it fits in with every other area of your life, not on your terms. It's inconvenient, but are you committed with everything you have? 
And by the way, let me say, if you don't think this is your church family, if you're here today but you don't think, you don't don't feel God calling you here, then please find where he is calling you to. Go somewhere else. Because one thing I absolutely know for certain is that if you're in Christ, God's call on your life is to be part of a church family. If it's not here, that's fine. Find quickly, please. Find where it is. But if you do feel that this is where God is calling you to be. This is the church family. King's Church Iwickham is where God's calling you to be a part of. Then be part. Be in. Be in. Don't stay on the outskirts. Don't stay on the fringes as a consumer. You know, the church is not a service provider that is there to meet your needs or to revolve around your preferences. No, it's not that. Be in. Be fully committed, contributing, committed, serving, giving, knowing others, being known, doing life with one another. You know, if you want a New Year's resolution, there it is. Resolve to be in. Whatever that means for you, whatever it looks like for you, resolve to be in the church. A fully functioning, fully committed member of this family. See, the thing is, I think the church is a revelation. I think it takes a revelation of the Holy Spirit to really get the church. And so I'm just going to play this video clip of a guy called Stephen Foster, who leads St. Aldate's Church in Oxford. And here he's describing how he got this revelation of the beauty of the church. up the church and go through it but I never really enjoy going to church and then one day uh, I was at the back of our church in East London and someone said to me oh we need help to run the coffee team and I was like I was like working like 70 80 hour week I'm like what and they were like yeah we Steve we really need your help running the coffee team on a Sunday and I was thinking I'm a barrister I'm not a barista like I've got a job I don't need another job to run the coffee team I just, you know, sometimes you just can't even think of what to say. So I was like, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it, okay. And, and I instantly thought, why did I do that? So I turned up next week, like, you know, trying to get the cups and everything, get the coffee right. As I handed these cups to people, something really changed in me. I found myself, as I handed coffee to these people, growing in love with them. I was like, these people are amazing. Like, this is this extraordinarily diverse community. It's been gathered from across the area probably not another place that looks as diverse and integrated as this. This is a miracle. And then even people I found a little bit more frustrating and complicated, as I handed them their coffee, I kind of grew in love with them. And I kind of basically fell in love with the church. And then I kind of went back to the person who'd asked me to do it. I said, we need a new coffee machine. We need better beans. We need better mugs. Like, we come on, these are amazing people. I want this to be the best coffee that they get. You know, they're coming to church on a Sunday morning. I got more and more passionate. I started to build a team to serve coffee on a Sunday morning. I sometimes say, making coffee changed my life because I fell in love with the Church of Jesus Christ. I didn't realize why it was special. I didn't realize why it mattered. And as I made coffee for people, I suddenly realized, oh, the church is like the bride of Jesus Christ. It's like the thing he gave himself for. Like the church is God's plan for the salvation of the world. There's no plan B. And God is going to build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So like God is putting all his eggs in the church basket. And I realized over those few weeks, there's a beautiful thing here. Yes, 
it messes up. Yes, it makes mistakes. You'll never find a perfect church, but it's a beautiful thing. And I thought, that's what I want to spend my life building. <laughs> I, I, I love that. Forgive me if I get emotional. I get emotional about this. Because it matters. It really matters. You know, if you serve coffee, please don't ever think you're just serving coffee. It's so much more. It's so much more significant. If you serve in the church in any capacity, please don't think it's just an activity to do, a duty that you have to do because it comes with being part of the church. No, it's so much more. It's so much more significant than that. The church of Jesus Christ is glorious. It is beautiful. It's imperfect and it is flawed and it is messy, certainly. But it is glorious. You know, when you get beyond the veneer that we like to kind of put on, the mask that we like to put on, when you, when you get beyond the superficiality that our culture kind of promotes, and people see you for what you really are, they see what you're really like with all of your flaws and all of your struggles, and you realise that they love you in a way. They love you because they've received the love of Christ and you find that supernaturally you can love them with all of their flaws and all of their struggles because you have received the love of Christ and you find that when you're in need, people are there to help and to bring God into the situation. People are there to, to provide and to love you. When you're falling apart, people are there to hold you up and to put you back together again. When you're doubting, people are there to remind you of what is true, what is eternally true. When you're mourning, people are there to mourn with you, to bring the comfort of God into your lives in the way only the Holy Spirit can through his people. And when you're celebrating, people are there to celebrate with you. It's glorious, it's wonderful. When it works, it's glorious. But it takes work, it takes intentionality, it takes commitment, it takes vulnerability. It takes generosity, it takes humility to be truly involved in the lives of others, to be truly family. It's not easy, but it is Jesus' plan for you. It's his design for you, and there is no plan B. Jesus loves his church, the radiant bride of Christ. As imperfect as it is, Jesus loves his church. He gave himself for the church. He's building his church. It is the greenhouse in which you can grow. In fact, it's the greenhouse that you need to be in if you're going to grow to all the fullness that God has for you. So at the start of this new year, really, it's a bit of a spiritual health check for us, for me. How healthy do you feel spiritually? How brightly are you shining for Jesus? What do we do about it? Well, we proclaim again and we demonstrate with our lives, we declare Jesus is Lord. And we live like he's our Lord. We remind ourselves of the glorious truth of the gospel. And we put down deep roots into that truth so that our lives shine with the light and with the life of Jesus to the world around us. And we take every opportunity, every opportunity to be in the family of God, knitted together, loving one another, encouraging and spurring one another on. As Paul said, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue Continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Amen.